Unless you've made a serious mistake, you are currently listening to a free excerpt of the committee program with me, Arun Chaudhry. Our show contains lots more global politics, and you can become a member at fans.fm slash committee to receive our full YouTube show, audio, plus other exclusive content. That's fans.fm slash committee. And be sure to check out our YouTube show every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Namiki Konst YouTube channel. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program. Today we are doing a deep dive for Deep Cuts with Amelia Horgan and Julia. Can you tell us uh, what we're going to talk about today? Yes, absolutely, Arun. Thank you. Um, so, Amelia is an accomplished writer and researcher based in the UK. She's been published by outlets including The Guardian, The Tribune, and Vice News. Her new book, Lost in Work, Escaping Capitalism, explores what work is and means under capitalism, how workers are disempowered in the workplace, and how we can fight for a more just and equitable future for workers. Thanks so much for joining us, Amelia. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Well, uh, first, I just wanted to ask you what motivated you to write this particular book? Uh, why did you feel mm -hmm. there was a need to dig into what work actually is under capitalism? And if you could, can you tell us exactly what we mean when we're talking about work under under capitalism? So in terms of motivation, I think there were kind of two strands. Um, one was I'm a philosophy PhD student and there has been a kind of recent turn towards work within political philosophy, um, looking at kind of domination in the workplace, um, looking at meaning in the workplace. And I think this is really welcome, but I was kind of, I was always worried that we'd lost something about the specificity of kind of capitalist work, right? So we hear a lot about um, problems in work, but we don't hear much about why is it um, that this has so much to do with, with the extraction of value, right? Like what is specifically kind of capitalist about these power relations? And the other is that there has been um, this massive kind of turn towards the left amongst young people, which is hugely welcome. And we've seen this resurgence of kind of left populism, mm -hmm. obviously kind of in some ways like on the back foot, uh, especially in Britain at the moment. But um, it felt like within that, there are a lot of young people who are very angry, um, had a sense that, that this thing, capitalism, was to blame, but in some ways still in that kind of framework of capitalism is this big, bad thing out there, right? Without thinking, what are its dynamics? Like, how does it work? Um, and you kind of get that meme version of, of socialism, right? Where it's like, join a union. You're like, okay, well, that's like, yeah, you should. But like, what, what do you do once you're in the union, right? You follow the meme and then, then what do you do? So it's kind of thinking about like, what is this thing? And there was also a similar kind of trend where you find influencers a lot would talk about capitalism, like kind of infographic style stuff. Um, and it'd be like capitalism becomes this kind of excuse or this moral universe. So people are like capitalists, which means they are interested in doing like the bad thing or like working too hard. But we didn't think about, OK, what actually shapes these behaviours? Like capitalism isn't like a set of attitudes, right? Like it's a particular social, like set of social relations, right? So it's thinking about how can I on the one hand, kind of like convince these liberal political philosophers that they need to be concerned specifically with capitalist work and also give some kind of flesh on the bones to this um, theoretical flesh on the bones to this outrage at capitalism, moving it away from this kind of moral world more to um, a sense of something actually existing in the world. And in terms of what capitalist work is, um, so I'd say it isn't just like the obligation to work, right? Like this is this is present across all societies. Um, 
all societies so far, right? You, you know, whether you're like a feudal kind of serf or whether you're a gig worker today, you have to go out and work. Um, but what makes capitalist work specific is that workers are separated from um, the means of production. Um, they are, they do not own them. They must sell their labor power to be able to um, pay for other goods to kind of reproduce themselves, right? So that's the specific thing. And that throws up a very particular relationship. Um, you have your boss and your manager, and what you sell to them is uh, your time, the capacity to do something in that time, right? So they have an interest in making sure you carry out the tasks in the way they want you to, which is often not the way you want to do it, right? So that's the kind of thing I'm interested in, that very specific relationship. Um, but of course, this isn't the only kind of work that goes on in capitalism, this kind of wage labor. There are other elements, which I'm sure we'll come on to, which are kind of, in some ways, the precondition for, for the being able to sell this little pocket of your time, um, right. i.e. wage labor. I think that actually um, helps us transition nicely into my next question, which, which was to ask about basically this tradition of female unpaid labor, so gendered labor um, that's done in the background of wage labor is not paid, is not acknowledged, um, and sort of the history of that over the last uh, decades, you know, what has happened with women entering the workplace, why has that been good or bad, what does that mean for this sort of gendered labor, and how do we think about organizing a society where this kind of labor is properly valued? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is... And throw in what Engels really got wrong fast. about the origins of it all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a Take common theme of the um, show. Is that <laughs> A common theme of the show is that Marx, mm -hmm. you know, Marx doesn't move as quickly as Engels and he's always getting these sort of big things wrong when he rushes through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, a, there's this really fascinating just anecdote, which is that at one point, when Marx and Engels first meet, uh, I think I'm remembering this correctly, they don't get on that well. They get on well when they meet the second time. And, and Marx is briefly worried that he is like the stupid one, right? So this is kind of an interesting, if you're ever worried in your group of friends that like you're not like the top of the game, and that was Marx <laughs> once. Um, but uh, back to kind of uh, household work, and, and I guess it, there's two things here. There's one is like the unpaid work in the household. Um, and there's some uh, kind of mid 20th century feminist mobilizations around this. So in fact, like, I mean, I guess most of mid 20th century feminism is about housework in one way or another, right? So you have the kind of liberal variant, which is like, there is this problem with no name. Women in the suburbs are isolated. They're lonely. Um, they're kind of like pilled up the eyeballs. They don't know what's going on. Like they are unhappy. And then you have um, elsewhere, you have this sense of, okay, so working class women are doing all this work for free or they're being kind of paid partly through the wage, but they don't get that money, right? Their husband's wage. And they do um, the caring, the cleaning, all of this stuff um, for once for their husband and their children, but also for the capitalists, right? So there's a kind of interesting element of exploitation there. So this kind of problem this question of housework and debates around what it was, what it um, what it should be, um, were really really central to, to um, feminism in the sixties and the seventies and and in going onwards, um, and um, there is also this thing which is a related thing, um, but we might divide them in some ways too. So this the, this notion of social reproduction. So um, when it becomes clear that like a, a 
revolution isn't necessarily forthcoming in parts of the world outside Russia. There's this sense of like, what? how does capitalism continue? We predicted that it wouldn't. We predicted that something would change. And yet uh, it is still here, right? It's still going on. So what is it about capitalism that allows it to reproduce itself? So you have a couple of elements within this. Mm -hmm. One is like, how does society reproduce itself as a whole? And the other is, how is this thing that's bought and sold labor power? How is that reproduced? So you have these kind of little two elements of, of, of reproduction. And we can have different arrangements of those in, in a given society. So if we think about uh, kind of, I guess, traditional Fordist setup in, in the global north, you would have um, a woman working at home for free doing housework and you would have like the man going out to work in the kind of paradigmatic Fordist factory right and we can say that this isn't true of everyone but it's still kind of dominant in the global north at least um, mm -hmm. then what do we have now we have a slightly more complicated situation because women have gone to work right but they tend to be in part-time work so you have this notion of like uh, the double shift they go to work they work at home for free afterwards but there's another element too which is that um, more and more of the kind of socially reproductive work is done outside of the home or is bought in to the household through like really low paid, um, often gig work, often involving global care chains, often involving migrants. So um, when someone pays like um, a delivery driver to deliver their takeaway or um, like an Instacart worker, right? Like to deliver bits of shopping. Mm -hmm. This is, in some ways, this is, I mean, not in some ways, this is social reproductive work. So we don't have this situation where it's only unpaid. We have a situation where it's um, unpaid. Um, some of it's gig work. Some of it might be wage work. Um, and in terms of solutions to this problem, I guess in the kind of classical, classical phase of it, you have one really... Um, one proposal which acts in, as a really interesting way of making a demand, which is to say, well, this work should be waged, should be paid, right? The wages for housework kind of paradigm in which one of the things that's important there is that it's being made visible as work. And the women who do it, uh, do this unpaid housework are being made visible as members of the working class rather than being seen as some kind of like feudal mm. remnant, right? Um, instead, they are members of the working class. They are also actors um, historically relevant actors right uh, and i think that's a really important part of that demand and that's something that sometimes gets forgotten is not just to say we want a wage it's to say no no we're part of the working class too and that that means something so that's one kind of proposal um angela davies writes an interesting kind of critique of, of this um and there's a there's a few kind of um rejoinders from elsewhere but i think what what's interesting about her proposal is that she says what we need to do is um socialize this work we need to make it uh, in some ways industrial we need to make it bigger we need to subsidize it and this is this is only possible under um if it's really subsidized right so you have kind of um teams of cleaners going around so it becomes not the uh business of one household but it's become shared so that's that's one interesting proposal as well um in terms of what in practice happened right you had i guess I mean, I think one thing that's kind of interesting to point out is just that uh, household standards have been lowered. So if we compare, like, uh, I guess, the kind of standards of a bourgeois home in, in the 50s, right? You have, like, all of this, like, nonsense kind of tableware. And you mean materially? You have, like, much more. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, um, I guess by that I mean just the amount of stuff that is required kind of changes for different things. So this is one way of reducing the work. Um, I think it's there's, this is contained within the individual household, so it's pretty limited. But you can say, look, we're not going to keep things as clean, right? That's one way to reduce the amount of work. It seems silly, but I think it's kind of significant. You can also say, we're going to make sure we have a more equitable way of like sharing the housework. Um, so 
say you've got like a husband or whatever who doesn't do very much and say no you're picking up the kids today that's one way um then there are some but i think this is still going to be fundamentally limited right um because what you have is a replication of that housework so if you imagine a street or a block of flats the same activities are being done in every single block in every single block in every single flat in every single house right so why do we have this replication um why not um, share some of this work between households? Um, and that's a really interesting possible mm -hmm. solution. Um, one of the things I touch on very briefly in the book is um, how the built environment could help here. So there's um, some kind of homes for uh, single parents and there's a shared uh, corridor and everyone can look into this corridor and all the kids can play out there, right? So it reduces the amount of work required mm -hmm. um, while, um, while not, actually changing very much but but um there you know there will be very different ways of, of kind of doing the social reproduction rather than having some of it done for free in the home some of it done by very cheap gig gig work or um yeah um what was i saying okay so, so that's one so there are some things we can do which don't change the relations of um ownership that much um i think people are resistant to the idea that this should all be done outside of the household and i, I think there's there's not nothing to that. It's very easy to say, you know, we have to um, get rid of the whole thing. But I think I think people have attachments to right. to the family. So things we can do is kind of transform it, right? And I don't think there's I don't think there's an, we should necessarily be like super precious about those. There are, there are many reasons to be highly critical of this thing. Um, but I think there are things we could do um, to take. I mean, we already do this, right? Like nurseries, childcare, increasing those kind of provisions so that people's lives are um, not only dependent on their immediate family, right? That, that there is some kind of um, democratically run, publicly owned system for, for doing the social reproduction um, that would take it, um, if people want it, it would be taken out of the home. And um, it would also be, you know, the people who currently do that work under really shitty conditions, either for free or in this like platform gig work. And I think we often think about like platform gig work as this kind of male dominated like um, delivery driver stuff. And that is a really important mm -hmm. part of it. But actually a lot of care work, whether that's like nannying or like elder care is done in a similar kind of way. Um, so thinking about how we can use like, you know, it, it is, it is, there is this, um, the, a lot of care work is done on these platforms as well. So how do we, take these people who are currently in these, like like how do workers in those industries, which are currently um, kind of gig work, um, make them into some better, into better jobs, right? Um, and I think that's a really important terrain of struggle. No, and it's funny, especially when you talk about technology in two ways. I think there's a lot of irony in that. In that one, technology seems to not be the answer to this, right? Like, you know, you're talking especially mm -hmm. about the 1940s and 50s, you know, which we're all familiar with. All of these kind of appliances being made to make women's lives easier seem to just sort of make them, you know, more complicated and take up more time mm. than they grant. But I thought, could you actually walk us, put an even finer point on the idea of the nuclear family and sort of, and capitalism mm. and, and like, you know, is this, this is sort of unique time in our history when we've decided that we should replicate in all these little boxes, all of these activities that you described. This is not the way that, you know, we evolved as a species, particularly. Yeah, and let mm. me also add on to that, that um, I liked how you spoke about how capitalism has this massive amount of propaganda around it, that it's like, there's no alternative to it. And there's a feeling mm. that it's always existed the way it is now. Mm. Um, and it's similar with the organization of the nuclear family, 
within capitalism. It's just this idea that families have always been organized this way. It's the only way to do it. It's very traditional. So if you could kind of speak to like, wh- where did these ideas come from that these things yeah. are sort of eternal? Mm. Yeah, there's something really um, profoundly kind of ideological about this um, dehistoricizing of whether it's a nuclear family or capitalism as a system, which says it has always been like this. Not only is there no alternative, it was always like this, or we were just waiting, like we were waiting for it to fully realize itself as this. Um, I think in terms of the, the nuclear family, I, I think there have been like different patterns of, of how that social reproduction is structured for, for quite a, you know, varying across space and space and time, right? So um, you would have the pre-industrial household would be a unit of production as, as well as of consumption. Um, so you wouldn't go out to work and get your wages um, by and large, like you'd produce stuff within the household. Um, so that didn't have the same gender division of labor. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting. And of course, I mean, like this idea that you like find the one when you're, I don't know, like in high school or at university, and then like you set up a stable home with them for your whole life. And you have like these, you know, the average number of kids, right? This is a historical anomaly in lots of ways. One is just that like, for lots of the past, people did not live long enough to just merely have like one partner, right? Like, you know, there isn't this stable unit and people would rely on networks of, um, relatives outside of that or neighbors outside of that or the community outside of that um but we have kind of this received notion that the best way to receive care the best way to receive love is within the the nuclear family um which is odd because it doesn't really seem to practically be the case right like it seems to throw up all of these kind of pathologies um but um what's really interesting to me now is that this uh ideology or this this received notion of of the nuclear family remains incredibly dominant, even though the possibilities the social possibilities that allow for it are really like steeply on the decline. Um, so think about the case in Britain, for example, like people have to live in house shares until they're in their thirties plus, right? Like you can't have this kind of life necessarily. Um, so it's interesting that this ideology is lingering on uh, in some ways past the time at which like this stuff is um, possible because it's still seen as the, the, the best way to uh, receive uh, love or to receive care um, and it, that's obviously hugely beneficial um, to the sustenance of, of capitalism because you get all of this like bonus free work right you get all of this bonus unpaid work um, yeah it'll be interesting to see how you know what where that goes as the possibilities for it diminish uh, further um. yeah I mean I guess there's a strong parallel between the sort of um, the traditional the sense that the nuclear family is very much the only way to organize uh communities that it's very parallel to to what we're calling you know late capitalism which is basically like we're at we're at and past a point where we've seen that the system isn't sustainable but it's still sort of just chugging along because mm-hmm. we don't exactly know how to get off the ride you know like it, it's it's because hard to know how to right. challenge capitalism yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. I, 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 actually, no, you're talking about these. these I don't same know. I platforms. don't know. <laughs> you're talking about these same platforms being used to organize. You know, uh, sort of a lot of this sort of unpaid shadow labor, as well as gig workers who we think of as being male dominated. I mean, do you mm-hmm. see the new way that they communicate building new communities that maybe aren't like traditional labor unions, but ha- but maybe uh, are a kernel for political power? Yeah, I think that's a, a really fascinating question. And it seems like a lot of it is dependent on 
just how work is structured in that particular bit of platform work. So you get these places where like delivery drivers have to congregate because they're waiting at a popular restaurant, right? So you have those informal conversations. People get to know each other. People are in uh, chats together. And like, obviously, uh, bosses and managers want to make people be in the official chats. And some workplaces even create like, a you know, a special little social media apps for the, the workers there to use. But workers make their own ones. And that's an often um, an interesting springboard for, for political activism. But I think um, one barrier is that as people become much more fragmented, and you don't have people concentrated, I mean, this is what this is in some ways Marx and Engels, like an important part of their kind of predictive thing is that you have a concentration of workers in one place, you have this massification. And in some ways, we are we're losing that, right? We're losing this this huge uh, workplace. So, um, and and that's one of the things I, I worry about, especially with uh, working from home, is people can't have those conversations in a way which isn't necessarily monitored, um, or you do, you don't know who you work with. And and this is something that workplaces have also been very keen to encourage, right? They want to move people around. They want to make sure that people, um, you know, people have shifts so that they they aren't they don't necessarily see each other. You don't necessarily know your colleagues. And I think the in some ways, like as much as um, platforms offer new ways of of, um, of people getting to talk to each other, they're also kind of barriers. Um, there's some interesting ideas about what we could do with creating kind of um, worker centres, which aren't tied to particular industries, but are just for like any worker in that in that like lo- locality. And, and that's a quite interesting idea. Um, but all of this requires us to to organise like harder and deeper all the time, basically, because more and more barriers to just like the natural conversations you would have with your colleagues are, are, are put up in front of us, right? Um, yeah. So mixed picture. <laughs> yeah. So you just mentioned uh, social media platforms. I think one of the things we've seen in the last decade or so is a sort of. Um, blurring of the line between work and relaxation and what's Mm. sharing with friends and what's Mm. sort of building a brand and how much of this stuff is really could be categorized as a sort of work if the goal is to present yourself in a certain way to other people or to employers. So I know you talked a bit about that, So, but I'd love it if you could sort of speak to how is that affecting this younger generation what does it mean to be able to relax for the the social media Gen Z millennials? Mm. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I this is one of the bits where I feel like I'm kind of turning into like a boomer because I I do really worry about technology and its effects on on sociability. But it's not just like technology in general, right? It's like the particular forms of technology and the particular ways that they set our activities to work and mind what we do for data. Um, that's the thing that, that really troubles me. Um, I think there is a kind of tendency to universalize from, and I feel this too, like from my own particular experience as like someone who is like a professional millennial, like online where like my brand is part of like my job and I went in a very particular way, right? And, and there's some kind of interesting effects that that has on, on me, which are quite troubling. But there's also, I think, the dynamics are really different if we compare that kind of management of self to say like um, the way an Uber driver has to manage their rating and has to anticipate like customers' feelings and mm-hmm. think about their reviews and so on, right? Like it's it's very different. Um, 
everyone has to be an entrepreneur of the, like the self, but the kind of um, possibilities that are, are circumscribed by your place in the division of labor as, as well as the technology. Um, and I mean, I think, I think one thing that really plagues me is just like the, um, the feeling of speeding up of time and the anxieties that come with that, right? So um, when you have not an obvious break between switching off and work, um, every moment could be put to good use or put to use um, and is encouraged to be put to use by like these social media apps which are kind of like super um, hungry for our data right they're always encouraging us to give it give more and more stuff because that's that's what they want um, that's what's profitable to them so the way they're designed is like designed to keep your attention um, and that like is not good for so sociability like i think it encourages um competitiveness it encourages like pretty unhealthy behaviors between people um and it also just um means that you don't ever get to like sit still and this is maybe kind of like silly romantic nonsense but i think there's something about like um mm. the use of time without direction which i think people really lack um just like sitting and doing something and not like not being consciously making good use of your time right um because i mean i think i think richard seymour's book the twitching machine is is really great on this and and the jenny adele how to do nothing um having to kind of relearn like just stillness is is, is really uh yeah is it, it is really troubling and i think i think again it's not the technology because this stuff could have really cool applications right like it's 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 brilliant that you can be in touch with people all over the world this is like a huge deal um thinking about like how many like players and novels from the past like the characters end up dead because they couldn't get like a letter in time right like this is huge but at the same time it's it's <laughs> it's not like something we control and, and the data <laughs> yeah like the data is not ours like you know like uh and i think we i think we don't need to you know be like every phone like you know stop people looking at their phones but i think we need to be very like wary of of the long-term effects this has on our on our on like social relations right um it is troubling yeah i think um you know you mentioned uber drivers and we've been talking about the gig economy um i'd be interested to talk a little bit about this concept of emotional mm -hmm. labor so like one of the things you were talking about with uber drivers is that they sort of have to manage their relationship to their customers and make sure their customers like them essentially. And that's something we see across the service industry, which has been termed emotional labor. Then that term has been sort of like bastardized online to, to basically mean anytime I feel emotional about something yeah. that's now emotional labor. <laughs> so can you like sort of break down, like what was the original intent of this mm -hmm. word? And like, why should we maybe be cautious about moving it into our personal interpersonal relationships that maybe don't mm -hmm. have a that power mm -hmm. dynamic yeah so i the, the term comes from early Hochschild's work um and it's she's talking about two examples um primarily air stewardesses and um debt collectors and they have to induce these emotional states in others right so if you're an air hostess you have to like make sure the passengers are happy. You have to smile pleasantly. If you're a debt collector, um, you have to make people scared, right? And it's interesting that the, the debt collector side of it gets, doesn't get brought up as much, but that's a really interesting part. It's not just this kind of um, super feminized work, it's, it's um, all kinds of activity that, that induces that, that affective state. Um, she's very clear that it only takes place in the workplace. And I think in some ways, this is a, the correct position to take, but we do end up in this complicated situation 
because with the social reproductive stuff, and again, this is, it becomes quite slippery because if you are, say you're looking after your kid, right? At what point are you done reproducing labor power? At what, done, at what point are you done reproducing capitalism like as a social whole? And at what point are you doing this kind of like genuine relational stuff, right? It's not obvious to say at which point is which. I think for me, one of the problems with this kind of creep or extension of the concept is that what is underdefined in it is the labor stuff. So the emotional stuff is like something to do with emotions, right? Okay, that seems fair enough, although sometimes a bit vague, especially when people are like, oh, remembering your birthday is emotional labor. And you're like, is that really emotional? That's just like mental, <laughs> right? Like, um, that is not emotional. Um, but I think what is often unclear is that when people bring this up and say X is emotional labor, it's like, okay, well, so what? What do you want? What do you want to happen as a result of that? Like, do you think it should be paid? Do you think like it should be distributed in a different way? And in some cases, the idea that it should be distributed in an emotional in a different way is like fair enough, right? If you want to say, hey, in our um, you know in our branch in our union branch, like it's weird that it's always the women who take the minutes. Maybe we should change it. It might not be accurate that that's emotional labor, right? Or maybe something more like um like facilitating the meeting would be more emotional labor, perhaps. Or emotional effort like I prefer to use effort because it just doesn't come with that kind of conceptual baggage um, I think people mm. I mean that's the thing that confuses me is the sense of like what do people what do people mean when they say that like are they just saying recognize it and I think it's easy you know that that X is work kind of uh, slogan where it's like you know I don't know um, when an activity kind of in the social realm is is, is seen as is work um, not, I'm not talking about situations where it's like this activity which should legally be recognized as work. For example, sex work should be considered work, but just more like, you know, I don't know. It's often things within activist groups. And I, I think there's a, there's a general tendency on the left, which is mm -hmm. to like use this language of work to describe like the work we do in, or the effort we, you know, do within like, within the left, within the movement. And I don't think that's always appropriate. Um, not when people, when people actually have jobs, that's a different thing. But like, I think, I think sometimes there's this weird creep of the kind of conceptual framework which doesn't always stick in the same way and i think yeah for me it's um yeah it's more of that like effort or the the labor bit is underdefined yeah, it, right yeah it sounds like um there's sort of this creep as you were saying of um applying this underlying capitalist terminology and paradigm to interpersonal relationships that may be sort of almost the opposite of what we want to be doing mm. like uh you know like banks over the last 30 40 years there's been this process of what's called like financialization where mm. it used to be you could buy stocks and you could buy all different kinds of things but now it's like anything that exists can be turned into an asset that you can buy and sell like a stock um and to me it feels like we're almost trying to like turn every interaction into a facet mm -hmm. of our capitalist existence. So it's like, mm -hmm. I had a conversation, where's my money? Yeah. And like, that's a bit like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that like starts to almost feel like we're becoming hyper capitalist exactly. as opposed to like pushing back on the idea mm. that, right. You know, Are we moving towards relationships justice only exist uh, as a di as a yeah. money and power exchange? Yeah. I mean, this stuff drives me kind of crazy to be honest, because it is just like, I don't know. It's like pay, pay me for, educating you or like just google it i'm not going to educate you it's like no no we have a responsibility to the movement and 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 it might be that within our groups we need to be concerned with particular dynamics particular gendered or, or racialized dynamics but like we have a responsibility like to 
to the world, to each other. And, and that doesn't look like demanding kind of payment for small bits of effort, right? Um, as painful as those bits of effort yeah. can be, like in a world which is oppressive, right? Um, and I do think you're right on this this point about the this creep of this kind of capitalist logic. And it's hard to resist in some ways. Um, I've been, I mean, it's something I've been thinking about a lot with um, in relation to care because I've, I've been quite ill since I got COVID last March um, and you kind of end up dependent on people and it's quite hard to um, like care can feel like a market transaction even when it's not right so you have the sense of this person's done this really kind thing for me what do I owe them like what thing do I need to give them in return so I think it's it's like it's not just like you know we can just say let's banish this logic it's hard to and we need to think about the ways in which our groups are structured and like how we can build movements which which resist that collectively um and which challenge those kind of behaviors and i think we're seeing a lot more of that behavior being challenged nowadays than 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 a few years ago which is which is really great i think people have kind of woken up and and really been like yeah this is just not a way to kind of carry on which is a really positive thing to my mind yeah, I think um, at least I, yeah, what I, from what I've seen over the last few years on the left, it does seem to be that there are these sort of ongoing conversations that happen on the collective level, which I do mm. think is something that we can attribute to social media in a way. It's sort of you sort of see the evolution of these public beliefs, and over time, if something doesn't fit into what we're trying to do, I do think there's pushback to it, and there are arguments and there are conversations. And as much as people sort of malign Twitter as this place where people are yelling at each other. I think it is a really, um, you know, revolutionary way to be able to sort of have these conversations and, and move them forward. Mm. Um, there was, <laughs> speaking of the the blurred line between work and not work and the capitalization, not a word, but, you know, whatever, turning everything into capitalism. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. There's this anecdote that you <laughs> wrote about in your book that I found <laughs> super depressing about these workers in the uh, London tube station where, like, just to kind of brighten up their day, they were like, let's start putting quotes on our little whiteboard. And people really liked it, and it started to go viral. And so what what happened next after they did this fun, uh, improvised thing? <laughs> well, like, yeah, it is so depressing. So, so yeah, but as you were saying, like, this group of workers write on these, these whiteboards, and, and, you know, these quotes are, like, cheesy. Sometimes they're silly. Sometimes they're really lovely. And um, they do it. It's very successful. People love it. And um, then... Another bit of the network, which is run um, by a concession, which is a particular way of structuring uh, a non-publicly run uh, bit of the the transport network. Um, And on that, basically, which is a slightly different bit, so the TFL stuff, the workers still have that autonomy, but a different set of workers. The employers in that that bit of it were like, aha, (laughs) so everyone goes wild for these boards. So we're just going to tell our workers what to put on them. So every day they get sent what to put on and they have to go and write it on the board themselves. Um, But they don't get any control over what it is. And I I think what what is so fascinating about this is it takes something which is spontaneous, human, relational, and it makes it something kind of like, uh, you know, a farcical version of that, right? The appearance of that. yeah. And that is really depressing. And this is the kind of stuff you see happen because in many bits of work, it isn't possible for it to be fully alienated, right? That little bit of humanity, that little bit of relationality, that little, you know, that little bit of like whatever it is, you know, spirit, soul, whatever we want to say, remains because people act with each other. Um, it's still kind of there in some bits of work, not all bits, but like, you know, 
um, the guys writing on the board are displaying that. But when you're being told by your manager, okay, so everyone has the same quote today. <laughs> and often some of these quotes are like hilariously like uh, unsuitable. Like they've just gone on like, the, the bosses have just gone on like, you know, like a wiki quote or like coolquotes.com. And some of the stuff they do is right. just like, it's inspirationalcrap.org. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. This kind of stuff. Um, so what's happened now is like, you know, that they're still they're still writing these quotes <laughs> um, and um, the model that's being used for those for that setup basically privatization of, of, of the railways in, in, in Britain has like totally failed um, and has led to uh, you know, the taxpayer subsidizing these companies so they've changed the model slightly and they've moved more towards this concession model which is the uh, model in which these uh, board this board stuff uh, the, the kind of co-opted version of the board stuff was happening, um, which comes with its own kind of set of problems. This is all quite like technical stuff about like the nationalization of British Rail, so I don't know if that's like particularly of interest, but I can go into more detail. No, but the ramifications is, but are um, real, uh-huh. right? It's like mm. when capitalism gets inside our national services, something really human, as you call it, like something human dies, you know? And I so I think it, yeah. it, it's definitely... Worth surfacing. And I mean, I think, yeah, I think with like railway, there's so one thing that happens when you try and you try and basically make as much profit off these kind of things as possible through um, outsourcing them through, um, you know, kind of being parasitic on them is you have to bring in this idea of like the customer and customer service, which is just like ridiculous for a railway because people use the railway to like commute or see their family right they're not like choosing between options here like the options are like go there or don't go there right um so it's it's this really bizarre thing and it's clearly designed to you know break workers spirits right um and the kind of practices that would be allowed so i mean another example in the book is that uh you know workers are supposed to know have a sense of like when the trains are coming like um where which how to get between places um and they often do because you know they give people this advice every day, but in the um, in the kind of uh, neoliberalized version, they just ask the same question every day, which is how do you get to the British Museum? And and again, this is not displaying like real human knowledge or like real real relationality or something really human. Instead, you just get this like performance, this complete charade of customer service rather than like providing a genuine service to people, or providing like getting people from A to B in, in this really important way. And and you know, especially something like public transport. In many ways, there's fundamentally a communal experience, right? Like everyone gets the, the tube, everyone gets the train. And, and this this is like really important. Like it's really egalitarian. Um, so this idea that you're like a little customer and you go off and you make your good customer decisions and you go and dispense with your human capital wisely seems like really anathema to um, the kind of egalitarian ideal which could be at the heart of like the city or the, at the heart of um, somewhere like London, right? Uh, yeah, I think um, I think we're we're coming up on time here, but I just want to ask you know a last question or two to wrap things up. Um, basically, at the end of your book, you start talking about what workers can do or what kind of mm-hmm. solutions we can imagine as we try to show class solidarity as we're moving forward and what you know what is necessary in the long term. Uh, another idea that you explored in the book that I think is really difficult for people um, like myself, like Arun, like all of us probably who are in this sort of professional class, the professional working class, which is actually very alienated from uh, the working classes uh, that are not 
professionals, so like blue collar mm-hmm. workers and workers around the world. Um, we have a lot of the same interests, but we also have divergent interests. Um, there's a lot mm-hmm. of people in the sort of managerial upper classes who feel like, well, I have enough cookies for myself, so like, let's just keep doing it this way. So how do we sort yeah. of encourage um, worker solidarity in a way that goes beyond, you know, individual workplaces and especially the kind of solidarity that can bring professional managerial people um, into the fold as opposed to just sort of accepting that, you know, we're going to be the sort of best servants in capitalism. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's there's something so important about that con- contradictory role of um, people in these kind of professional positions. And you see it in particular work in workplaces as well. So, I mean, you see basically people being, uh, you know, bought off or brought in to to the side of management and and that kind of you know the ability to switch between the two and it, and it's not easy especially when you have this kind of um uh, moments of crisis where uh you know you see this a lot in, in higher education you'll see like um oh if we don't do this the department will close or the university will be in really dire straits and the answer the this that has to be done by management is always like oh fire all of these adjuncts or fire all of these cleaners or outsource this so it's quite hard because you know those certain people do have this contradictory um position i think in terms of like defeating that that's a what we do about that is, is is not at all easy. Um, I think there's a tendency from the centre to, you know, the harder left to imagine that there's going to be one easy fix or one quick fix or like, you know, here is the answer to to it. So whether that's, you know, like, I don't know, Andrew Yang being like, just we'll just do UBI or like, um, you know, or or just like, or people being like, we can just do UBS instead of UBI and that solves the problem. The, th- the position I kind of advocate for, or alternatively just being like, okay, we just need to just like redo the 70s, but this time we win, which like would be great, right? But we can't necessarily bring back those conditions immediately. <laughs> um, we need to like, you know, uh, undo deindustrialization. Um, so I think what I kind of advocate for in the book is um, is a variety of tactics without losing sight of what it is that gives workers power, which is deepening union power, which is building a more united working class. Um, so that is the fundamental precondition. But alone, that's not enough, right? Like doing things like that, um, you know, that, that take some of this more... Um, you know, perhaps more esoteric stuff or stuff a bit more like UBI. And we can see in some ways that the difference a, a miniature form of UBI has done with like people's stimulus checks, allowing them to have better bargaining positions at work and so on. And obviously this is incredibly temporary. Like there are lots of people being like, this has changed everything, which is like, mm, let's see in six months if it's changed anything at all. But like, it seems significant in the short term. <laughs> so something like that points to the ways in which like these things, which on their own would not be decisive, like UBI could be helpful in terms of building worker power. So... Yeah, I'm not sure I fully answered that question because it is really hard. Um, the other solution which has been proposed, which I think is interesting, is to kind of bring together the uh, the, the worker as a uh, worker at work and also someone who is um, tied up in the conditions of their social reproduction. So you see this in this kind of idea of this whole worker union organising. And there's some interesting campaigns in, in Britain around this, like um, Sheffield needs a, uh, needs a pay rise, um, and stuff like that looks at both the kind of social reproduction side of working class life as well as like the worker side. And I think that's that 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 offers a lot of promise, especially because a lot of the sectors we will be, you know, we are organizing in are ones which people depend on for social reproduction or depend on for pretty basic services. And like, 
there you really need to have a coalition otherwise the press will just like tear you to shreds and be like oh so you're going on strike so you want babies to die in the hospital so like you do need to build these um these kind of coalitions so yeah again not a full answer but i think that's an interesting um an interesting way around uh, the problems of um kind of yeah uh the reduction of worker power is to bring together these Definitely. two sides i mean as a it's a huge question. It's a very broad question, mm. which I think you addressed very well in your uh, fantastic book. So I, I want to thank you for joining us today. Again, the the book is Lost in Work, Escaping Capitalism. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back sometime to chat a little bit more. Um, thanks so much, Amelia. Thank you. La imagen por la cual vale la pena arriesgar la vida, sacrificarse hasta la muerte en los Committee, committato, committed, committato, carul, committee, we young way, submitting, we committee.